You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. So what does a healthy church look like? What do you think? Shout out your answer if you could. A healthy church goes on after the worship parts of the, the, the platform is over. Thank you. Anyone else? Love one another. Healthy church is one where people love one another. One more. Forgive one another because we love one another. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I used this fabulous uh, research tool called Google and searched uh, healthy church. You know, several lists showed up. Uh, a list of 12 uh, mentioned uh, biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship, biblical membership, biblical leadership, biblical teaching and preaching, biblical ordinances, biblical worship, biblical prayer, biblical fellowship, biblical accountability and discipline, biblical giving, and biblical mission as the characteristics of the healthy church. I would say that's a biblical list, right? Uh, all that is necessary for a healthy church, uh, or necessary for a healthy church, but I feel there was something uh, more essential uh, characteristic that was missing from that list. So I looked up another one, this time a list of 10, that had a completely different set of characteristics for a healthy church. Obedience, humility, love, a servant's heart, joy, gratitude, accountability, forgiveness, vision, and sacrifice. A different list for sure, and a very commendable one at that. However, I still had the feeling that a more foundational characteristic of a healthy church was missing from this list too. But thankfully, we have the Word of God. So our passage for today, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, uh, speaks of that essential characteristic that was missing from our two lists, a Christ-centered unity that is expressed through service that leads to maturity in Christ-likeness. A Christ-centered unity that is expressed through service and leads to maturity in Christ-likeness. That's what a mature or a healthy church looks like, at least according to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. We saw this outline. We are now, believe it or not, halfway through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've we've wrapped up chapter 3, and we are now uh, at the second half of the letter with chapter 4. The, the letter divides into three main parts. The first one speaks of salvation accomplished. So in the first three chapters, uh, Paul has de- de- declared, and, and we've seen God's glorious triumph in Christ Jesus, through which he has not only accomplished our redemption, but will one day gather and unite all things, things in heaven, things on earth, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and renew all things. The victorious Christ has vanquished all principalities, powers, and authorities, and is seated high above them at the right hand of God. 
His victory is demonstrated by our being freed from the powers that held us bondage in bondage in death and sin. His victory and God's plan to unify all things in Him are demonstrated in the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church as a preview of things to come. His victory demonstrated in the weakness of an imprisoned apostle whose proclamation nonetheless brings people into the body of Christ. All of this because of our God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or think in accomplishing his good purposes. This great victory of God uh, declared in chapters 1 to 3 needs to be lived out in the church and that's what we find in chapters 4 through 6. The salvation that needs to be accomplished is a salvation that is performed, a salvation that is lived out. So Paul begins chapter 4 with an appeal to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received because of the glorious victory of Christ. That manner of life that is worthy of the calling we received begins with unity through service that leads to maturity that looks like Christ. Unity through mutual service so that both individual believers and the church as a whole grows in Christ's likeness. That's our passage for today. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Divides into three sections. First, uh, the call to unity in, our, in the Godhead and the basis for it. Uh, secondly, the diversity of gifts given for service that leads to that unity. And then finally, uh, all that is toward maturity that looks like Christ himself in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The first section in verses 1 to 6, we have a call for unity and the basis for that unity. In, uh, in 1 to 3, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul begins with, therefore. Remember, whenever we see a therefore, we ask, what's it there for? Well, you are well trained. <laughs> the therefore with which Paul begins chapter 4 certainly ta takes us back to the doxology with which he ended chapter 3. Our, our prayer answering God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think to the praise of his glory. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Paul, however, has much more than the end of chapter 3 in mind. He has all three of the previous chapters in mind when he writes the therefore here in chapter 4.1. Given the victory of God through the work of Christ and vanquishing the powers that held us captive and ending the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and creating them into a new man, the church, where God dwells and who has exalted Christ to his right hand above all powers as the head of the church and who through the church even through an imprisoned apostle, has begun to gather all things in heaven and on earth and will fulfill his purpose for creation, therefore. Therefore, this great salvation that has been accomplished, this Paul, he writes, and he describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord. He called, that, called himself that earlier in chapter 3, verse 1. He's a prisoner in Rome, but he's not a prisoner of Rome. Uh, it was his calling, even from his conversion, as we saw last week, that he would suffer for Christ. 
He is therefore a prisoner for the Lord, yet his imprisonment doesn't stop Christ from carrying out his mission even through the weakness and the shame of an imprisoned apostle, even as Christ himself accomplished through the weakness and shame of the cross, the great victory by which he has vanquished all the powers. Paul urges the Ephesians. Remember how he uh, started his epistle, introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So here when, I say, when he says, I urge you, it's not just an imprisoned apostle exhorting these people. It is the Lord who sent him and the God who willed that he would be the one sent by his Lord. It is he who urges us. So this, this exhortation comes in the authority of the Lord Jesus and by the will of God. And the exhortation is that the Ephesians and we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The rest of the chapters, 4 through 6, will spell out what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling. But the exhortation starts here in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, walk in a manner. Walk is a metaphor for living, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Work, walk or live in the manner with which you have been called. Walk has been used as a metaphor life even previously here in Ephesians and will continue in the remaining chapters as well. In chapter 2 verse 1 we were told we previously walked in sins and trespasses. We were the walking dead at that time. And, and God gloriously saved us but God raised us up with Christ and in chapter 2 verse 10 he did that so that we ought to walk in good works that God has already prepared for us beforehand. Here we have walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In chapter 4 verse 17 Paul will tell us no longer walk as the Gentiles do in immorality. In chapter 5 verse 1 he will say walk in love. And he says here that we walk or live in a manner worthy of our calling. The calling to which we have been called has, was first expressed in chapter 1 verse 18 the, where the calling is to a hope. But also all of chapter 2 describes the calling from who we were to who we are. We who are the walking dead in trespasses and sins, God has made us alive together with Christ. So walk as people who are alive in Christ. We who are at enmity with each other and alienated from God's people have been brought together through the cross of Christ as one body, the temple where God himself dwells through the Spirit, we are called to live as the household of God. Paul tells us how we can do so. There are four virtues that are necessary to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we see that in uh, verse 2. With all humility and uh, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility is a characteristic of Christ himself. He says that about himself. Uh, Come to me all who are weary, uh, because he says, I am humble and I am gentle. You can actually go around saying you are humble if you are truly humble. Uh, uh, Paul says, uh, because God wants us to be humble. And Christ says he is humble, and that's how Paul describes him in Philippians chapter 2, which uh, Judy read for us so well. He humbled himself. What is humility? Humility is a, is a right, uh, is a truthful assessment of who we are, that we are creatures, 
uh, and that we are sinful ones at that. And that truthful assessment of ourselves is expressed in other-centeredness, love. The opposite helps us to understand that because pride is a false assessment of oneself and that is expressed in uh, self-centeredness. Christ is humble. We need humility if we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The next quality that's necessary to walk in, a, in that manner, to live in that way, is, is gentleness. Again, that's the second thing that Christ uses of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. that he is not only humble, but he's gentle, he's meek, uh, that's strength under control. Uh, you probably heard it said, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength for serving. In chapter 13 of John, knowing that he was from God and that he was returning to God, what did he do? He did what a servant does. He put on a, a towel and washed people's feet. That's meekness. And then, uh, and also notice that uh, meek, gentleness is a, is, a, is a gift of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.23. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. We need the Spirit of God to work that in us. Then patience. Uh, Galatians, again, that's also a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Uh, but it's also a characteristic of God as long-suffering. God has a long fuse, unless some of us who have a very short fuse. Right? In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses asks God uh, to show himself, God shows himself by describing himself. And, and one of the qualities there is that he's long-suffering, he's patient. And then fourthly, uh, he, uh, the quality we need is to bear with one another in love. The idea of bearing with one another is used with the, in the sense of putting up with difficult people. Jesus would say that to those who kept asking him for signs. How long must I bear with you? Uh, it could be used in the, in the sense of persecution or bearing up under persecution in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and, first, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen, we are difficult people. Right? All of us are. And we need to be able to bear with one another in love if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Notice, all of these are relational values, right? We are living in a manner worthy of the calling we have received uh, requires rela uh, relationships. We need one another to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. These exhortations are not for isolated individuals, but for our common life, our lives together as the people of God, among whom He dwells by the Spirit, to form us in Christ-likeness, to, to bear witness to the world. Unity and maturity require community. We long, we're told, read your Bible and pray every day and you will grow, grow, grow. Maybe they don't sing that song anymore, but that's a good thing because you can't do that on your own. <laughs> you can read your Bible and pray on your own, but to grow, 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 we need each other. And then Paul concludes with the with the, 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 how unity is maintained is, is being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word maintain suggests that unity is already present. What is required is to preserve the unity that has been granted by the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is to be pursued eagerly, but unity is not something that's produced by our effort. It's the work of the Spirit uniting us to Christ and therefore uniting us to one another, even as we saw in chapter 2. Also, if God is uniting all things, things in heaven, things on earth, in Christ, as we were told in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, unity is, is vital to our witness to God's work in Christ. 
we, we are to maintain this unity in the bond of peace. A bond is something that holds things together, and what holds us together is peace. Again, peace is not something that we attain by our own effort. We were told again in chapter 2 that it is Christ who has accomplished this peace through his work on the cross. He himself is our peace, and he has made, he has made peace between those who are far, those who are near, Jews and Gentiles, and has united us in one body, and that unity we are called to preserve by the Spirit. So division among Christians is an affront to and a denial of the gospel. Uh, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we let our differences divide us. Paul goes on in the next verses to, to give us the basis for our unity. In verses 4 through 6, we read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice first that the Trinitarian basis for our unity. One spirit in verse 4. One Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5. One father in verse 6. Paul names seven ones here that are the theological basis for the unity that has already been granted to us in Christ by the Spirit. These are common to all of us who are believers, all of us who are united to Christ. One body. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 16. The body of Christ, the literal body of Christ that was hung on the cross, it is through that work on the cross, he has brought Jew and Gentile together into one body, his body, uh, that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. We are one body. Paul, uh, in that passage that we look at every time we do communion, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, quite often we think Paul is talking about, when he calls us to examine ourselves, he is calling us to examine ourselves for our individual sins. That's not what he is doing. If you look at the context, the Corinthians are a divided lot between the rich and the poor. The rich were eating ahead of time and they're not waiting for the poor. The rich go home full and the poor are hungry. They are not considering the body. And Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're rightly considering the body. It is important to us that we realize that we are uh, one body, one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, one hope. I said earlier, we were told about our hope in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul prayed that we would know the hope of our calling. Our hope is our participation in God's plan for redemption and unifying all things in Christ. Our hope is in God's choosing us even before the foundation of the world. Our hope is God's completion of the work He has begun. Our hope is that we will be holy and blameless before God when He is done. Our hope is glorious. And all of us as believers have that one hope. One Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Paul asks the divided Corinthians, Christ is not divided, is He? And if the answer is no, then the body of Christ should not be divided either. Christ is addressed as Lord throughout the New Testament. Uh, the term Lord is used of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is, is the name of the triune God. One faith, our confessional faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, but also our professed faith, our confidence, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all share that common faith. Our confidence for all of us is in Christ alone. Uh, not in ourselves or anyone else. We share a common faith 
in the sense of that once and for all delivered faith from the Lord through his apostles to us that we are to pass on to those who come before us, come after us. One baptism, both water baptism and spirit baptism unite us. In water baptism, we are united in the identity of the name, the one name of the three persons. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are all baptized in that name. Same thing with the, unit, with the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that just that by that one Spirit, we are baptized into the body of Christ. So you can't belong to Jesus Christ by yourself. You belong to Jesus Christ along with everybody else who belongs to Jesus Christ. One baptism. And finally, one God. Usually the Father is mentioned first, but Paul sums up the basis of our unity in the Father, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the one God, the Father who is sovereign over all, who is present in his creation, and who sustains all of creation. There are seven perfect ones as the basis for our unity, my brothers and sisters. If this is what unites us, can there be any reason for us to be divided? Uh, yet uh, many of us stand divided. If you walk down the street, there are five churches with five first something on their, on their board. How do we get here? I believe that the reason is because of what Paul says next. We have not grown to maturity through mutual service by the gifts Christ has granted us through the Spirit, so we find ourselves divided. So what is needed for unity that leads to maturity is a community that is characterized by gifted service. And that's where Paul goes uh, next uh, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. It divides into, into five sections. There's the centrality, the certainty of the giftedness, the one who gave the gifts, the variety of gifted people that he has given us gifts, and the purpose of the gifts and the scope of the gifted service. First, we see the certainty of giftedness, verse 7, and the victorious uh, gift giver in uh, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice the theme of one continues here, but here it's each one of us. That is, all believers have received gifts of grace from the risen and victorious Christ. These gifts are by grace, not because of our worth or earned by our performance. Even as Paul has repeated several times already that his own apostleship and ministry are by God's grace. So also the gifts to believers for service are by God's grace. Each and every believer has received, has received a gift from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul asserts the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, and every believer has received a gift as the Spirit wills. Here it is Christ who gives gifts, and it is according to His measure. A couple of ways to understand what Paul means here. Uh, he could mean that uh, everyone has received a measure of grace, and that measure is Christ himself. Uh, but a better way of understanding that is that Christ has given gifts appropriate to each one of us. So the gift that we have received is according to God's precise plan and purpose for us. His gifts to each one of us are like fitted garments. They, they suit us perfectly according to his purpose, and not necessarily according to our desires. We don't have to desire someone else's gifts. God has given us that which he sees is perfect for us, 
and is necessary for our lives together as the body of Christ. Before Paul uh, discusses the gifts uh, further, he, he, he presents the giver of the gifts. We read in verses 8 uh, through 10, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, uh, he, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. He quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18. In, uh, in verse 8, uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, uh, in, in the psalm, it reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. The context of that psalm is one of God's victory over the enemies of God's people. Uh, and, and God is victorious and has taken captive those as enemies. And, uh, but there's a difference in the psalm. In the psalm, God is receiving gifts. But Paul has changed a couple of things here. He, he says God is, as Christ is giving gifts. Is he taking liberties with the text to suit his uh, own purposes? No. Uh, Paul's quotation here is not a verbatim, verbatim quote from Psalm 68, but is very true to the overall tenor of the whole psalm. He is he, taking the message of the whole psalm because in Psalm 68, God does give gifts. The victorious God. In verse 35 of Psalm 68, we read, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Christ has ascended to victory over the powers, and the ascendant Christ has given gifts to his people. The ascent and descent of Christ has been interpreted in three ways by the scholars. I wouldn't go into all the details. We will otherwise heed Brother James's request for staying here for a long time and be a, and be a healthy church. <laughs> um, no, uh, the, the best uh, possible way probably to understand this is uh, the descent refers to his incarnation and the lower parts is an apposition there, that is lower parts, namely the earth. The, the one who dwells in the heavens and always dwelt uh, eternally uh, took on human form and, and, and in that sense descended on the earth and his ascent there's agreement that it refers to his resurrection and his ascension. As we told in chapter 1, God not only raised Christ from the dead, but also exalted him to his right hand far above all principalities, powers, and authorities. And he has taken them captive. He's taken their, their work captive. And we are free because of the, 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 the power and the victory of Christ. And Christ is now the head of the church and he fills the church so that through the church he may proclaim that victory that he has won and draw all things to himself so that ultimately things in heaven, things on earth will be united in him and will be renewed at his return. And that victorious Lord Jesus is the one who gives gifts to equip its, his church for maturity and for its mission to which he is called to make him known to the ends of the earth. Paul then goes on to the gifts themselves in verses 11 through 13. He writes, uh, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We find the list of spiritual gifts in four places in the scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Easy to remember, 12, 12, 4, 4. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter. But the list in Ephesians is different from the other three lists. In other three, there are gifts that are given to people uh, for use of service. But here in Ephesians 4, it is gifted people that are given to the church for equipping the saints for ministry. We read in verse 11, And he gave not apostleship, not prophecy, not uh, evangelization, but he, he gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, and he gave shepherds and teachers. Apostles and prophets, we've already seen them in chapter 2, verse 20, where they were the foundation on which the church is built with uh, Christ himself being the cornerstone. We also saw them in chapter 3, verse 5, that they are the ones through whom the mystery that was previously hidden has now been revealed. So these are the foundational gifts that was necessary to, to reveal God's purposes and, and his will to people. Now that his revealed will has come to us in the scriptures that came through the apostles and prophets, these foundational gifts are not available. We, uh, we, we have the other three that still remain with the church because the church still needs evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Evangelists are those who proclaim the gospel to those who are far, those who are near. Uh, Philip is called the evangelist in the book of Acts. He, uh, he, he proclaims to the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, he then goes on his way to his hometown, proclaiming Christ all along the way, and God is pleased to draw people to himself through the evangelism of Philip. Timothy is reminded by Paul to do the work of an evangelist. Evangelists make the gospel known, but evangelism is something that we are all called to do, to make Christ known, but there are some specially gifted people. I have several friends who went through seminary who have that. If something moves, they will share the gospel with it. They're just so gifted in, in, uh, in finding the right way to share the gospel. But all of us are called, but some are gifted as evangelists. And then there are shepherds and teachers. You know, God himself is called a shepherd in the Old Testament, and our Lord Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the chief shepherd in the New Testament. Pastors are under shepherds. The word we call it, translate pastors also is the word for shepherds. Uh, and, and pastors are responsible for their nurture, their protection, the care, and the oversight of God's people. And uh, pastors and teachers are governed by a common article, so many believe that these two are the same uh, persons, pastors who are teachers. So pastors are also called to equip God's people in, in faith, in sound doctrine, to pass on the once and for all received faith uh, to, to, the, to the people of God. In verse 12, Paul gives us the purpose of the gifts. The purpose of these gifted people given to the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Notice these gifts of people are not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip God's people for ministry. Ministry is the service performed toward others, not for self-promotion. You know, all believers, irrespective of their age, gender, whatever, are, 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 are to be equipped so that they may serve the body of Christ to which they belong. And in verse 13, we have the scope of the service until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The equipping of the saints is an ongoing work for pastors and teachers. It is to continue on until the return of the Lord when we will attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's when we will attain full maturity, when we shall see Him and we shall be like Him. There is no point before that where we can or should stop growing in our faith and in our maturity and we are being equipped for service that leads to that maturity. And finally, we have in verses 14 through 16, the outcome of the use of these gifts of service in building up the body. The whole body grows to maturity, and this maturity is expressed in three ways. In discernment, in truth and love, and in, in corporate, not just individual, Christ-likeness. Paul writes in 14 through 16, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is, doing its work, uh, work, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity is first expressed in discernment, so that we may no longer be like children. The outcome of... Uh, Maturity is that we will not be misled by erroneous and false doctrine, erroneous teaching, especially by deceitful and cunning people who mislead the church for self-serving reasons. They will give an account to God, but we are called to maturity so that we are not misled by these wolves in sheep's clothing. A number of years ago, a popular, uh, popular Christian radio host misled God's, Bible, uh, God's people but predicting the return of Christ on a particular certain date, and then urging people to leave their churches. Of course, his prediction was false. Even more than that, it contradicted scripture. It was so sad to see many of God's people, even some of our people, being misled by this man. Why? Because they had not grown to maturity, and we're still children being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Maturity is characterized by discernment, where we can discern truth from error and falsehood. Secondly, it's expressed in truth and love. Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love. That's the positive expression of maturity. It's speaking the truth in love. Literally, truthing in love. Paul uses the word for truth in a, in a, in a verbal form. Uh, see, truth and love cannot be separated. Christ is truth personified. Christ is love personified. And his people ought to be known for both. You know, truth without love would lead to legalism. Right? Love without truth will be mere sentimentalism. And the mature Christians speak or live the truth, but they do so in love. Finally, maturity looks like Christ. But it's a corporate Christ-likeness. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. Maturity is demonstrated ultimately in Christ-likeness. Notice first, Christ is the source of this growth to his likeness, from whom the whole body is joined together. Second, each part, that is every member, brings their service for the body to grow to maturity. Paul uses a similar metaphor for the body in 1 Corinthians 12 in the use of spiritual gifts. 
Third, love is the essential center to the use of our gifts to serve one another that we may grow to maturity. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 in, in his instruction on the use of spiritual gifts. So between 12 and 14 stands chapter 13, the chapter on love. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in, in its context is not a is a, not about marital love, but about the use of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. We are to use the gifts to build one another up in love. Paul began chapter 4 with an exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He, he described the characteristics necessary for that walk, humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. That life worthy of our calling is possible only when we maintain the unity by the Holy Spirit, and we grow even as evangelists and pastors and teachers equip us for our ministry, and our mutual service to one another leads to maturity that is characterized by discernment, by truth and love, and by Christ-likeness, both corporately first and also individually. Chapters 4 through 6 are all about living out the faith. If you are looking for something practical in our study in Ephesians, in our study of Ephesians, we are here. <laughs> all the rest of the chapters, all four through six, are about living out our salvation, uh, the performance of the gospel, the performance of our salvation in community. First, unity in the Godhead. Uh, I can't emphasize enough the need for uh, unity in the church. Our Lord, in, in his high priestly prayer, declared that our unity was central to our witness uh, in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. He, he prays there, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you send me, and love them even as you loved me. Three times the Lord prays that we may be one. And the quality of oneness is the, the kind of oneness that is found between the Father and the Son. And twice, he tells us that's the kind of unity, the oneness that is necessary for our witness and that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son only through the oneness of his uh, people. Unity stands in the center of God's purposes. In Ephesians, God in redemption is regathering to himself in Christ the world that was fragmented by the fall. That was the fall. He broke to pieces every relationship between God and man, between people, between people and creation. Everything was broken. In redemption, God is gathering up to himself the whole world, starting with us. So God has begun doing in the church what he will one day do for all creation. And the unity in the church is the witness to the world of the consummation of God's redemption. All of creation brought to Christ and renewed in him. When the world looks into the church and sees the Jew and Gentile, male and female, barbarian and Scythian, and slave and free man, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, educated and uneducated, blue-collar worker, Wall Street tycoon, all together as one family, it's a witness 
to this world that Christ is bringing together all who are otherwise divided. However, if the world looks into the church and sees us divided in the same manner the world is divided, we have no witness. We have laid aside the basis of our unity in the triune God and let trivialities divide us. What are the things that divide us, brothers and sisters? Someone did not honor us as we thought they ought to. Someone said or did something that irked us. Something was done in a manner that isn't our preference. Uh, these are often the small things that get under our skin and cause us to speak harsh words, spread rumors, fail to give the benefit of doubt, and we end up acting like the world that does not have the resources that are available to us. What does it take to preserve the unity in the body? It takes humility. It takes gentleness. It takes patience. It takes love that forbears wrongdoing. It takes the Holy Spirit and yielding ourselves to Him and not to the flesh that is self-seeking and proud and harsh and impatient and hateful. Paul knows that unity is not at the expense of truth. Peaceful unity requires honesty. It requires accountability. In the fallen world, we as the body of Christ are confronted with, the, with all the ills in the world that divide people causes conflict, creates hostility, but however, we can't let these things disrupt the unity of the body. The Lord takes our unity seriously, and His Word has severe warnings for those who cause disunity, who cause strife, who, who disrupt the body. Paul writes to a divided Corinthian church that God will destroy those who destroy the church by causing strife and division. He's writing to believers there. The good news is that we don't have to be divided. We ought to be different in the church in the way in which we handle these conflicts because we have resources that the world does not have. Unity requires seeking the welfare of the other over our own. Unity requires love. Unity requires the Holy Spirit. Unity needs Christ. It takes God. And that's who we have. We are one body because we are one God who is our Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one hope, and one baptism. It's our unity in the midst of our ethnic diversity that witnesses Christ to a racially polarized world. It's our unity in caring for the needs of one another that witnesses Christ to a world where their haves and the have-nots are at loggerheads with each other and ready to go to war. It's our unity in welcoming the stranger and showing hospitality to everyone that witnesses to a world tearing apart at the seams over immigration and, and the refugee challenges. Unity lived out in community is at the center of our mission to engage the city and impact the world with the unifying gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we saw in this passage about diversity of gifts for service. Our text today has two things concerning the gifts of God for the people of God. First, we saw in verse 7 that every believer has been given a gift by the risen and victorious Lord for the purpose of service. Second, we saw in verses 11 through 13 that God has given gifted people to the church to equip the saints, that's us, for the work of the ministry. Both of these, the service of gifted members and the equipping of the members by those given that task by Christ, by Christ are necessary for the church, for its unity, for its witness, for the church to mature and be Christ-like. He is the source of the gifts and he is the goal 
of our growth and unity. So let's look at these in turn. First, every believer has been granted a gift as the Lord has apportioned it. He, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We said earlier, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, if you want to know a variety of gifts that Christ has given to his body, the church. None of these lists are exhaustive. That's what makes some of our spiritual gift inventories somewhat unreliable and inadequate. But did you hear that to each, both in Ephesians 4, 7 and in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Christ has fitted you and me, every believer, with a tailor-made gift. And some may have more than one, like Paul himself. However, the gift is not for the benefit of the person who received it, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it is for the common good. Our gifts are to be employed in mutual service for the building up of the church. The idea of self-edification is a misnomer, my brothers and sisters. I know Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.4 that the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. But I believe that is to indicate that that's an improper use of the gift, which is given for the common good. He will take the rest of chapter 14 to correct that error because he has already said in chapter 12 verse 7 that all the gifts are for the common good. He's not going to turn around and contradict himself. Gifts are for the edification of the other. We are edified not by ourselves but by others. If every believer is using his or her gifts for the common good, for the building up of the body, then the body functions as it ought to. It's a healthy body. However, if some people are not employing their gifts in the service of our lives together, then the body misses those services, those gifts, and is poor for that reason, and it's unhealthy. Uh, the sad reality of the church today, as is often said, and it's probably true, 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the body. Uh, what would you call a human body in which only 20% of the parts are functional? You get the picture. The Spirit of God is powerful, and He's able to bring about His purposes even with the limited functionality found in our churches. But imagine how beautiful the church would be if every member is pitching in with, the, with the his or her God-given gifts in the service to the body, and we together for service ask the body to the world that stands in need of Christ. But how do you know what gift Christ has given us? You know, there are many approaches to discovering our spiritual gifts. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think we should rely mainly on uh, the spiritual gift inventory approach. First, because the lists in the four passages on New Testament are not exhaustive. There are more gifts than what are listed there. Our God is the one who does unimaginably more we can ask or think. Secondly, and more importantly, these lists can somehow pigeonhole us into certain categories of gifts and keep us from exploring and exercising other means of service that are open to us. So the best way of discovering and employing our spiritual gifts, I believe, is by seeing a need in the body and stepping in to help. God and his people will affirm whether you have that gift or not. So one of the reasons I married my uh, wife is because of her ability to see a need and step in, and I was a very needy man. Uh, <laughs> When uh, we were courting each other, I saw numerous ways in which she would give up her comfort to serve another. We would be seated for dinner at one of her ministry gatherings. She would see, uh, notice a mother with a child struggling at the table, and she would immediately get up and hold the child so that the mother can eat in peace. Uh, we have people like that in our body. Uh, Tom is outreach pastor, not because he went to 
seminary and got a degree in outreaching, although he did go to seminary. Uh, you point Tom to a need, and he will make sure that need is met. He's called a disaster pastor, not because he's a disaster, <laughs> but thanks to his gifts, many a disaster has been mitigated. And we have plenty of people like that. You have Robert and the very vocal David Morales over there, and, uh, and Loreen and Audrey, and uh, Nakisha is not here. Uh, but there's so many of our people are uh, gifted in so many ways, and, and they employ their gifts, in, in, and, and uh, they did that by seeing a need and stepping in. If Calvary is to grow in unity and maturity, if Calvary is to engage the city and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need every one of you, brothers and sisters. We need each and every one of you to bring your gifts that Christ has given you. It's not my word. It's his word that has given you one. Uh, those of you who are home and watching, uh, we keep urging you to come and join us because we need you. The body of Christ needs you and you need us if we are to grow up in Christ. So please go to that Serve tab on our website and discover various opportunities to serve. We'll train you if you think you don't have the skills that are needed. If the Spirit of God has convicted you today and you want to join in serving the body, would you come forward at the end of the service and speak to one of the pastors? We will help you to connect you to opportunities to serve. Quickly, our, our passage also spoke of leaders giving us gifts to the church to to, to equip the body for ministry. Often there's a misunderstanding in the church that pastors are paid ministers to do the work of the ministry, uh, and this often reflected in the titles that are given to us, you know, um, senior minister and worship minister and outreach minister and so on. What our text reminded us today is pastors are like uh, directors and coaches, you know, uh, and coaches. So the members of the church are the cast trained by the directors to play their roles, their parts in the body. The members of the church are the players on a sports team that is coached by the coach, the pastors, to play their part so the team plays well together. So in, in theater and in sports, the directors and coaches are not involved themselves. The directors are not, do not have acting roles most, most often, and coaches are not often players. But in the church, pastors are also members of the body. So in that sense, they serve, but their calling is primarily to, to equip God's people, care for God's people, to direct their service for the gospel performance in the community. Our pastors are here to equip you. Uh, when we meet together on Mondays, what I'm eager to see here is not what they did, but how they equipped the people of Calvary to do the work of the ministry. Uh, maturity, finally, is, is Christ's likeness. What does Christian maturity look like? It looks like Jesus. Our text today is first about corporate maturity before it's about individual maturity. What does the mature church look like? It looks like Jesus. What does it mean to look like Jesus? Let's take one of those four uh, virtues that were listed. Humility. Would people say that Calvary is a humble church? That is, do we consider others more important than ourselves? We saw humility is a truthful assessment of oneself that is expressed in other-centeredness as opposed to pride, which is a false assessment of ourselves uh, expressed in self-centeredness. Whether it's a church or individuals, we need to be honest about ourselves, where we stand in our walk with Christ. As a church, we can't live in the past. Uh, being truthful to ourselves is, uh, is to recognize where we are today. Rejoice in God's continued goodness and presence with us, and serve one another in the city to which he has sent us. 
uh, our, our witness ought to be characterized by another aspect of maturity, speaking the truth in love. The evangelical church seeks to stand for truth, but is not often known to do so in love. In the current issues of today, whether it's abortion or homosexuality or gender dysphoria, uh, the conservative side of the evangelical church has often stood for truth, but is not necessarily known for its love. We, we, we rightly stand with the unborn. Let us also gain a reputation of caring for pregnant women, especially unwed ones. Let us be known as people who are pro-life in every stage of life, especially uh, from, from pre-birth to birth to all of life. See, Christianity spread like wildfire in the ancient world, ancient pagan world, because of its meek and loving service to the needy and the outcasts, even as it stood on the foundation of the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and not these pagan gods, but yet they served. Our Lord is truth personified. He was known as a friend of sinners. Would we be accused of the same thing? Um, the same thing in, in, in our approach to those who have disordered sexual desires and gender confusion, gender confusion, we rightly emphasize that the truth that in the beginning God made us, God created us as male and female, and that sexual relationships have been ordained by God in marriage between male and female. Yet how do we express love for those who are homosexual or transgender or the myriad of other identities we find in the world today? See, the God who made us male and female also made us all in his image. Every person is an image bearer and deserves the love and respect that God has bestowed upon them by being, uh, making them in his own image. Even when they are living contrary to God-ordained ways. We need to learn to love them and care for them, even as we stand firm on what Scripture teaches concerning gender and sexuality. Let them know that the church disagrees with their lifestyle, but there should be no doubt that Christians love them and care for them and respect them as human beings. Unity through service toward maturity. That's what it takes to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of the calling we have received. By grace, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, may we yield to the Holy Spirit to empower us for that walk so that our lives may be indeed to the praise of God's glory. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege to come to you this morning and know what you have done for us. And knowing that requires that we ought to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to be known as people who are humble and gentle, uh, people who are patient and bear with one another in love. Unite us through the gifts of service that you've given us that we may serve one another mutually and through that grow us to the maturity where we are able to discern truth from error, where we speak the truth in love, and where we increasingly grow in Christ-likeness till the day when we shall see him and we shall be like him. Thank you that you will do this, for that's your will for us. In Christ Jesus our Lord, and in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.